If you are currently hearing the sound of my voice, you have once again stumbled on the podcast for The Committee Program, the chronicle of the world's most mysterious political communications agency. We hear a committee, uh, besides servicing our clients and their fight against the far right continent wide, are also happy to bring you informative segments uh, about little pieces that people might be missing, all in an entertaining variety grab bag format. Now listen, we are back. We are back for season two, and we are back in a very big way. We are starting with our Epiphany Day Spectacular. And look, as you know, on the podcast, we strip down the show into its just most essential element and deliver it to you. Uh, but we have decided that starting with season two, we are not going to do that. We are going to deliver the same experience to both. In fact, maybe even sort of more on the audio side. We want to really lean in on audio, including some music and culture and criticism. Uh, and so we are going to be expanding the show in a lot of ways and bringing you on the podcast more of that. So you'll get a taste of what that's like today. If it's horrible, please do sing out. Uh, but what we're going to do is after this you will hear a normal kind of uh, committee program podcast conversation we're having with Vijay Prashad about the Indian farm protest movement in India, uh, which as you know, culminated in the repeal of those three horrible Modi farm bills in November, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, and then we will play the show in its entirety. So you can get a taste of what it is like, what it will be like, uh, although it will not quite be this long. There are a few parts of it that are visual, um, not too much, uh, otherwise I would have cut it out. I still think it's understandable to know what's going on, but that is why that is. It is that way because this is actually the audio from the video program. So moving forward in February, as the show starts, we will be in an audio first way producing a larger program that will be delivered to you in all of its segments in podcast form. And if we need to make a special segment that has just the more serious stuff um, as one thing, then that's something that we'll do. Anyway, thanks so much for your attention. Uh, if you do feel like supporting the show, patreon.com slash committee program is our handle. And just look, we appreciate you being here. Enjoy the Epiphany Day Spectacular. I always wanted to have a holiday program. We missed Christmas, you know. <laughs> we missed Hanukkah, which was really early this year. We missed a lot of things, but we actually got it together for Epiphany Day, and we're really excited to bring it to you. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. We have with us friend of the show, Vijay Prashad. Vijay, Happy New Year. How are you? Happy New Year. It's great to be with you. And I really do like that charming, happy cat, lucky cat. I hope you have a lot of luck this year. Thank you. Is that also a puffin beside the cat? That is a puffin. That is Oscar the puffin. Uh, I was in an airport on Ambien, which, as you know, is a very powerful sleep drug. And when I came home, Oscar came after that. So something happened in the Iceland airport uh, and a star was born. And that's awesome. That's amazing. Well done. <laughs> yeah, well you. played. <laughs> uh, so before we jump into the farmers protest movement in India, which I think a lot of our viewers want to understand more about and that a new chapter is unfolding on, I just quickly, you are in Chile. You know a lot about politics. You know a lot of the players. How is it going for President Boric. And I say this because it's so easy to have this black and white fascism versus the left, you know, black and white election, and then, oh my God, you win and everything becomes grayscale. Uh, has that happened yet? 
Well, everything should be a little grayscale anyway, in my opinion, because we are in a very difficult situation um, globally, you know, and if you look at all of Latin America, South America in particular, it's not been easy for a progressive government to move an agenda. Uh, looking north to Peru, where Pedro Castillo won an election, man of the teachers union, uh, pushed up by the mass movements and so on. Immense pressure on his government uh, from, let's say, entities unnamed. Um, his links to his own political party, Peru Libre, were cut. Uh, his ties to the leader of that party, Vladimir Serrano, severed. Um, he's re relatively isolated and has to has had to move uh, to seek support from sections of the right. Now that's in Peru, you know, which just had a triumphant election, the victory of the left and so on. But the space of maneuver very much narrowed in Argentina, where Alberto Fernandez has been the president for a while. Space of maneuver immensely narrowed there. We don't have to guess who the agents of that narrowing have been. It was the IMF. Uh, they essentially told the Argentinians, either you follow our mandate or, you know, we're going to flush you down the toilet. We're going to right. cut you off. Um, Argentina couldn't afford that. Alberto Fernandez had to therefore start playing, uh, you know, in the big sandbox. Couldn't stand outside and say, you know, we're going to change things. Very difficult. Boric himself, uh, Gabriel Boric, not a man of the left as such. He's a student leader, um, a centrist politician, you know, was the candidate of the broad front, which included the Communist Party, included various left factions and so on. But he himself comes from the social democratic wing of Chilean politics. It's an enormous achievement that he was able to defeat, lead the broad front to defeat the right in the election, particularly given the fact um, that the right wing was not just a right wing, but led by a fascist. Yeah. Uh, it said a lot that he was able Open. to defeat yeah. that fascist. You know, when I talked to his main advisor, Giorgio Jackson, uh, last year, Giorgio Jackson said, look, it's going to be difficult to advance a left agenda immediately. The, the culture of Chile is not going to permit it. The real hope is in the Constituent Assembly, where a new constitution is being written. And I think it's the combination of three things. On the one side, sustained protests that started in 2019. If those protests end, people go back home. I don't think it's going to be as much uh, to you know, celebrate in the, in the year ahead. So the sustained protest, if this continues, if the Constituent Assembly is able to produce a viable, good constitution, the word viable is important. It has to be something that even the right accepts. You know, if they completely reject it, you might enter into uncharted mm -hmm. terrain. So it has to be a viable, nonetheless left, uh, you know, constitution. By left, I simply mean, and this is what Giorgio Jackson said, look, most people agree with the social agenda. Even if you establish that, that say Chile is a plurinational country, you know, the Mapuche and others have a role in it and so on. Even if you establish that, that's an enormous difference from the Pinochet uh, constitution of 1980. So basically, that's the second thing. And the third thing added to that is what Boric can move. You know, the agenda he can move is not easy. The reason I say that is that for the first year, he actually has to govern with Pinera's uh, budget. 
He can't have his own budget immediately. Yeah. That traps you, man. That's how the a budget that's is a literal blueprint for what you, you can do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, tough. but the thing is, people don't realize that. And so then when they see him govern with Pinera's budget, they'll start to criticize him. And that's a problem. There has to be a kind of, you know, cold rationality when the left comes to power or even the center left comes to power. There has to be a cold rationality. We have to push what is possible, not just immediately say, let's do everything. And I think that's going to be the challenge. So when you said black and white, grayscale and so on, mm. I hope everything is a little bit in grayscale, frankly. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. And, and our tendency is to want to polarize and to push and to make easy decisions. Uh, and when it comes to election, right, I'm not a journalist, I'm a political campaigner. Making that very clear choice very clear is, uh, you know, when you have what seems like such a clear choice, you feel lucky where you're like, I'm, you know, presenting the voters with a zero or a one. But you're right. It never is just a zero or a one. Uh, shifting gears, but also, I think, in, in terms of the world of what is possible. Look, since 2020, we have seen these uh, farmer protests uh, in India. Lots of people have been inspired by them. Marches on Delhi uh, culminating in, in late November, actual repeal of these farm bills that were so unpopular with the agricultural sector in India, uh, I just wanted to hear from you a bit about how you thought, uh, you know, the origins and uh, people don't know much about what it was. And it's so important because we know that next week uh, there's actually going to be they're all getting together, the farmers movement and forming a political party and talking about changing from black and white to grayscale. That's changing from black and white to technicolor. <laughs> well, that's well put. Um, see. Look, there's a broad thing that we have across the world of an attempt by global capitalism. You know, capitalism always wants to get the best deal against the workers. That's yeah. just, you know, the normal thing. There's been an attempt to use advances in technology, particularly in the kind of ubiquity of smartphones and apps. There's been an attempt to move to kind of Uberized labor. You know, just as you have the Uber driver who drives you around from here to there, you have now kind of Uberized food delivery, Uberized grocery shopping, you know. In fact, Amazon is a kind of precursor to Uber because really Amazon was Uberizing shopping, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I don't know why we don't call it Amazoning, but at any rate, it's Uberizing. The Indian government moved to kind of Uberize farmers, you know, to use... Um, a concentrated marketplace run by big capitalist firms uh, to make decisions on pricing and so on and have farmers who are basically then, you know, essentially um, would be made into a kind of subcontractor of an, of an agricultural app. You know, that's how the marketplace was going to, that was the fantasy of the marketplace that the Modi government pushed through into bills, in uh, three bills in 2020. They kind of hammered these bills through. There was no question of democracy. There was no debate on the bills. Essentially, as I say, if you don't want to get into the details of it, they wanted to Uberize Indian farming. And that's the reason. Um, in, on the 26th of November of 2020, farmers joined a nationwide labor protest. 250 million workers yeah, struck okay. on the 26th of November. But that was the inauguration of the farmer protest. And from that day onwards, farmers, now I use the word farmer advisedly. Um, these are not necessarily agricultural workers, even though they came and participated. 
these are farmers, including pretty big farmers. That's why you saw in the images at the various checkpoints where farmers came and set up encampments, uh, farmers came in tractors, they came on trucks, you know, they brought heavy yeah. machinery. Agricultural workers don't own tractors, man. No, it's true. It was serious business. These were like tanks yeah. coming down the street. It was big stuff. That's right. Yeah. They brought essentially the heavy artillery of the of agriculture um, to these points and set up checkpoints, barricades, you know, said we are not going to, um, you know, we're going to enter Delhi or we're not en entering any, allowing anybody to come in or leave. So their protest, which starts on the 26th of November 2020, was actually a kind of almost cross-class protest of agriculture against the government, especially in the northern states of Uttar Pradesh, western Uttar Pradesh, Punjab and Haryana. These were the key states, although I must say there was mass support for this protest elsewhere. The reason these three states were key is they're near Delhi. And the farmers decided to come and essentially garrison Delhi. They can only come from there. It's really hard to come, say, from Maharashtra. You know, although huge detachment of farmers did come from Maharashtra, that was not the bulk of them. In Punjab, Haryana and western Uttar Pradesh, almost all the farming areas had uh, large delegations at these points. And entire communities were committed to it. This was old-fashioned labor organizing, you know, where... I'm an agriculturalist, me and my family and so on, we participate, but then our neighbors who are not agriculturalists also get involved. They donate money, yeah. they come and donate food, they help provide things, or they say, leave your children with us while you go to the site, we'll raise your children while you're away, you know. And as the protest went from one week, one month to a year, this community support was essential. You know, imagine that, like entire family has gone to demonstrate all the young children and grandchildren were left with the neighbors and so on. That means it becomes a community struggle. I want to emphasize this. The whole community got involved in this. This was very interesting because the Indian government tried all it could do. The Modi government did everything it could do to break the unity of the strike. They said, look, there's, they are, they are anti-national. That's a term of art in India, anti-national. Yep. Or that they are, you know, terrorists. They are um, Khalistanis, referring to the secessionist movement in Punjab, which has long died out. You know, they were using these terms. At which point, and this is interesting, because from the time of the British rule, a lot of recruitment of the military took place in Punjab and in Haryana. So these farmer families that had come and were in protest were being told, you are terrorists, you are anti-national, you are Khalistanis. Their children who were in the military, serving children in the military, came to the protest sites and said, I am a, I am a Jawan, I am a soldier, my parents are Kisans, they are farmers, the unity of Kisans and Jawans is integral, you can't break it, they threw their medals, you know, yeah, it's a significant site, this surprised the Modi government. Then they tried to create a kind of faux farmers organization to start negotiations with, Nobody would have it, you know. It's a classic technique of companies, right? You say, well, we're talking to the official union. What official union? It's the, you know, it's the cousin of the owner's yeah. friend or whatever, some joke. Rejected by the farmers. They refused all these things. They came there with a really a very credible set of demands, which included things like subsidies for agriculture, but also withdrawal of bills that diminished the citizenship standing of Muslims. 
In other words, they had a political consciousness. This is important. Yeah. They were not just fighting on economic lines. You know, we want the withdrawal of these palm bills, etc. Yes, they had those. That's a core demand. But they had a lot of political demands there as well, you know, which included, you know, better education systems and so on. People have not focused on that. And that's why it's interesting that they have a political consciousness now. Um, so this was their demand structure. They came to negotiate with Modi, couldn't get headway. Then Modi had two choices, basically. It's a line from capital, you know, either you uh, surrender or you use force. And I think the Indian government at some point, there was a lot of debate in Delhi, but at some point the government felt we'd have to kill a lot of people to crush this rebellion. We'd have to kill a lot of people on live TV, right. social media. Right, starts to be PR problem at some point. Yeah, yeah we're just not going to do this. And so Modi surrendered. This is the second time he surrendered uh, on any policy in, in his period since 2014, the previous time was also because of farmer unrest, just to put this on the table, that the farmers twice have defeated Modi. Only twice he's had to back off from anything uh, since 2014. It's incredible. I mean, how, how much of that is like, well, let me ask this in a different way. So, you know, uh, uh, my people are farmers from UP. Uh, they are, a lot of them are very conservative politically. Um, how much were were these folks formerly part of Modi's base? How much were they apolitical and this drew them in? It sounds to me like they have, they are coming from politics if they have a political program that doesn't spontaneously, uh, you know, emerge. Well, look, it's a range of people. This was a mass struggle and mass struggles by their character exceed political organization. You know, that's the nature of a mass struggle. Political organization is so important to give mass struggle shape and form. Uh, and so the communist trade unions played a major role. The All India Kisan Sabha played a major role. Nobody denies that. Mr. Tikayat, for instance, um, whose political party, the Bharat Kisan Union, played a big role in this. The, the, one of the major, the farmers unions, major farmers unions played a major role. But this protest, as it became a mass struggle, it completely exceeded these political formations. And then it draws in people who might have been supporters of Modi, which is why it gets complicated because we have elections coming. Um, they might have supported Modi, whether passively or not. And actually more important than that, in Punjab, where Modi's party, the BJP, is not able to win on its own, had been in alliance with the Akali Dal. Mm. And the Akali Dal's base was being uh, stripped through these protest movements where many Akali supporters had come out in protest and they were turning on the Akali Dal party and saying, why are you in alliance with a government that's essentially assassinating us? Similarly, in UP, in Western UP, the, the, that section of Western UP that runs from the Uttarakhand border goes all the way down to Delhi, you know, that entire belt of Jat farmers. Yep. Um, these Jat farmers had basically given themselves over into various alliances with the BJP, that's Modi's party in UP. And now the Jat farmers and their main political instrument led by the son of the great Charan Singh, um, that instrument is moved away from the BJP. So, I, you know, it's, it's true that the farmers movement has had a political impact. Of course, it will be tested in the polls, right? 
you can't just say yes yes it's had an impact the polls yeah. are a kind of test i mean i'm i'm willing to concede that um yes it will be tested in the polls but we can already see anxiety and in many ways mm. the reason for that surrender in november of 2021 was modi understood there are elections in punjab there are elections in in up in uttar pradesh there are elections in uttarakhand and these are very important because this is the big catchment area of bjp support you know the hindu right cannot win in south india it has to overwhelmingly win in northern india Rack it and all up, yeah. if if it doesn't it's a catastrophe so yeah it's a big issue and of course the pressure is what makes people make mistakes especially when they have big personalities and so it does present an opportunity uh but it's this next step that's tricky right uh, as we discussed even next week uh, a lot of the folks from this thing that was a movement and not a political party is trying to form a political party can you tell us a little more about what they're thinking and the pitfalls ahead and you know this is so much of a bigger thing um but i do a lot of work in italy and i'm reminded of the sardines movement and the instant that they said they had a, a, a you know this was people coming to the piazzas everywhere and the instant they had a political program they were done it was you know x thing yeah so i mean we're talking about india where in india jockeying is sometimes as important as the as the final you know stamp on the table um i think it was not inevitable that these formations particularly the samyukta kisan morcha the skm it's not actually um inevitable that they would come in this direction because after all it's a broad front platform for the farmers movement so i don't know where this is going to go i think the announcement we're entering politics and so on might be a pressure campaign against the established political parties look frankly in these kind of situations it's all about alliance building and as in the case of western up um the samajwadi party of akhilesh yadav has made an alliance with charan singh's great party you know the lokdal uh, uh, party because you want that fraction of the jat vote to come to the samajwadi vote break away from the bjp and so on so how to consolidate the anti bjp sentiment in western up that becomes an issue whether they'll succeed or not we'll see because you know the hindu right is also keen on polarizing the election on religious lines we can talk about that later yep. uh, but in punjab it's it's a different story because in punjab it's generally been a two way election between the bjp and the akalis on the one side and the congress and its allies on the other um well what role will this farmers alliance play in punjab you know will it be able to consolidate another block is it a pressure campaign to push for the farmers issues to be at the center of the punjab election see that could just be what they're going for and i think that's smart you create some kind of block you say our program of 14 18 points you know that we put at the table uh, these are we want the punjab election to be about that about we want it to mm -hmm. be a referendum on our platform and then you force the congress and the akalis and the bjp you know, to to actually come to your agenda You see there's a couple of ways elections take place one is you make it a referendum on the on the incumbent this is the government they have done nothing so let's throw them out or if the incumbent has had a successful tenure the incumbent says look at my record look how useless the opposition is let's have an election yeah this is the way bourgeois elections works it's basically about incumbency that's how it goes 
Now what the farmers, I think, are trying to do from what I'm understanding and what I'm hearing from people is that they are saying, no, let's make the election about our program. I think that's very interesting. Uh, that's a rare thing in Indian politics, you know, and rare thing in bourgeois politics where even, you know, when you say in Italy, let's go from the plazas to political thing. Well, what's the agenda? Are you strong enough to make this a referendum, say, on the agenda of austerity? Um, are you strong enough to do that? I don't think you're strong enough. You're just moving a mass mobilization into political organization. That often fails if you don't have a strategic vision. And I think from what I'm hearing, because remember, it's a big coalition, lots of people. It could be that Tikayat is just doing this as his political vehicle. You know, one guy, a very popular farmer leader, is saying, I want to have more political power. So I'm could be that. Could be that they are they have decided let's try to make the election a referendum on us. I think if that's the case, if the Punjab election to some extent, not entirely, but to some extent becomes a referendum on the farmers' demands you'll have a much richer democratic experience this year, frankly. Then you'll have a richer democratic, than what you're definitely going to see in Uttar Pradesh and in Uttarkhand, uh, two states where the BJP is powerful, where it's they are strong. desperate yeah, yeah. to make it an election about Muslims. Desperate. They are, they are so desperate. Um, they don't want this to be an election on class lines. Because, look, frankly, no bourgeois uh, government wants to see class issues be the dominant issues. They would prefer the so-called cultural battles. The culture was a, such a safe place to have a political disagreement. You know, let's have a battle about critical race theory in the United States. Totally. Critical race theory, 99% of the people have no clue what you're talking about. Basically, it's about racism or something or the other. White people not wanting to feel bad about themselves. It's just the alienation from politics is the goal and it works. Yeah, It works, right? It completely works. Have a real debate about real issues? Let's not, not, not today, you know, not today. I mean, you're sitting in Germany, right? Look at the election that took place in Germany. I mean, I couldn't make head or tail what the election was about. It seemed to me the election was who's going to be the closest heir apparent to um, Angela Merkel. That's not a democratic election. And That's even then it was barely that. You know, the way gaffes got covered in this election, you would have thought it was an American election, to be honest. Like the way that just the, the crap rose to the surface. Uh, but look, even, even um, well, not even. He is an unorthodox thinker and that's why we like him. But Marx would remind us that it's conditions, but also personalities. What can you tell us about some of the personalities who will emerge in this transition into politics, who may become leaders of the movement? We know Balthus saying like, who, what, who are some yeah. of these folks we should be keeping an eye on? Yeah, I mean, look, the, fr frankly, the main characters are Mr. Tikayat, who is, you know, he played a big role initially. Um, his, for, for, let's go back a little bit. I mean, Rakesh Tikayat's father was the real guy, Mahendra Singh Tikayat. You know, he was the real uh, leader of, of the farmer's leader. Uh, he comes from Muzaffarnagar district in Uttar Pradesh. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a he was considered the Chaudhary, you know, I mean, like he was a big guy. He came from old power, the kind of old village power, the cup power of, of Western UP. Uh, so Mr. Mahindra Singh Tikayat, you know, he created uh, the initial political organizations. He was well known 
to bring you know hundreds of thousands of farmers from western up into delhi uh, to demand you know that the government continue subsidy regimes and so on i mean i well remember in 1988 when mahindra singh tikayat brought you know 500000 farmers maybe more uh, to delhi during rajiv gandhi's government brought them in there to demand things like higher sugarcane prices you know these were all specific farmer related issues you know higher sugarcane prices was a big issue at that time uh, as india was entering into the kind of liberalization period cutting subsidies cutting subsidies on water for farmers a very key issue water electricity mm-hmm. prices things like that so mahendra singh tikayat made his name in that you know he became a big farm leader but didn't convert actually into any kind of politics i mean um you know he brought his he supported various political leaders back and forth and so on but that was not his main thing his main thing was he was a he constructed himself as the farm leader you know uh his it's his son actually um mr rakesh tikayat Uh, who is one of the key figures mm-hmm. in this uh, samyukta or, or rather first the bharat kisan union the indian kisan union which is a constituent of the skm samyukta uh, the group that's going to most likely be you know most likely we're not sure yet you know but most likely it will form something or the other so mr rakesh tikayat he is a very interesting guy very charismatic farmer leader um you know developed his father's base brought it into um in a sense this protest movement played a key role here you know um i mean if you think about the four or five people who played a, a important role he is there the leaders of the all india kisan sabha which is the communist group they are there and so on unlike his father rakesh tikayat has already been a prom a pretty important political figure mm-hmm. you know he has run for office in the rashtriya lokdal uh, seat and so on so they are still you know he is a prominent person like that not a um, you know not a uh, not a kind of uh, you know like his father mainly no, an agricultural exactly, yeah. leader um, he's already danced in politics this organization the rashtriya lokdal is interesting um, it was founded by another great western up Chaudhary you know Chaudhary Charan Singh who is also um prime minister of India his son Ajit Singh uh, you know developed the Rashtriya Lok Dal and he is the one who's gone into alliance with the Samajwadi party of Akhilesh Yadav in Uttar Pradesh now Uttar Pradesh is really important because the BJP has a super majority in the state house you know it's a, by the way we talk about states it's a state of 204 million people um it's the largest state in india you know it's it's a country by itself okay and it's enormous and it has a range of different cultures and communities and so on but uh if akhilesh yadav if this alliance with ajit singh lasts and if they are able in uttar pradesh to make the election to some extent about the farmers struggle um this will have an impact you know if they can prevent the bjp from making it an election about muslims it will have an impact so you got to watch out for um what the bharatiya lokdal does you know whether they'll mm-hmm. maintain that alliance with akhilesh yadav you got to look and see what rakesh, uh, rakesh tikayat does um you know whether the bharatiya kisan union is actually going to create a political organization or whether that's an organization to move an agenda let's see you know i mean 
I'm always wary even when things are launched in India. Um, you know, you'll have a launch party today and tomorrow you hear news they've made an alliance with somebody else. And then that launch was mainly, it's like building a raft, you see, uh, to enter, to cross the river to your destination. It's not actually a boat. It's just yeah. a temporary raft. So, I mean, I'm very cautious. But these are the people to look at, you know, carefully. The communists who played a major role in the protests don't have any electoral uh, chances in any of these states, partly because the communist apparatus, you know, the kind of election apparatus, the money needed and so on is not available. Um, see, it's a fascinating thing. Many years ago, I campaigned with my comrades for Subhashini Ali in Kanpur, which is in, in, in Uttar Pradesh. It's a major industrial city. Uh, Subhashini was running for the Indian parliament from there. And when we campaigned in the workers' areas, we'd see red flags everywhere, you know, from the center of Indian trade union. This is the communist union. The whole neighborhood seemed festooned with red flags. I went to many people's homes and said, you know, will you vote for Comrade Subhashini Ali? She's the daughter of Captain Lakshmi uh, Sagal. You know, Captain Lakshmi was led the Rani of Jhansi Brigade with Netaji Subhash Chandra Bose against the British, you know, in, in Burma and so on. She was a heroic figure and she was a heroic doctor in Kanpur and here's her daughter who is a great leader herself running. And they would say, listen, you know, we love you guys. We are with the red flag in the factory. We are, but when it comes to voting in elections, we have to vote for the Congress. And I'd say, why? They said, because the Congress can get us electricity connections. They can get my son a job. Right. They can do this. Patron client stuff that the left, you know, honestly, that's not our agenda. You know, we want to create massive social change. We're not sure about patron client, you know, networks and so on. Look, I agree. All change happens from individuals, but it's not by dispensing goodies, you know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's the nature of elections in India. So the left actually played an outsized role in this protest movement. And I think that's important to register. But... You can't translate that into elections. So it's down to these sorts of plebeian parties, you know. By plebeian, I, I mean these are not working class parties. They are not, um, you know, necessarily farmer parties. They are popular parties, you know. They, they have yeah. some popular base. And it's down to them to defeat the BJP, which is the party of money. And that, I mean, that's the ingredient, right? Like we want to see mass parties, right? Parties that actually represent masses and not, and not individual interests. The last thing I do want to ask you, though, is on the other side, the right, you know, Modi has upended politics in so many ways. You know, what can we expect? Uh, how do you think it will play out in terms of, and again, this is, you know, where a lot of my family's from, so I see it happen into anti-Muslim feelings, etc. Well, you know, the town where Mr. Tikat is from had a terrible communal riot. Communal is a bizarre, again, a term of art from India. It refers essentially to sectarian pogrom-like violence uh, in 2013. The BJP is a master of using this kind of violence, anti-Muslim violence in particular, but sometimes caste violence, to create a kind of toxic environment, polarize the electorate and bring large numbers of Hindus to vote, um, saying that there's a Muslim threat or there's a, you know, uh, uh, low caste threat or whatever, something like that. They are masters of this. 2013, they did it very successfully in anticipation of the 2014 election. Again, they 
continue to do use this technique on the 17th of December, 17th, 18th, 19th of December, 2021, in the town of Haridwar, which is up in Uttarakhand, there was a so-called Dharam Sansad held. Um, Dharam Sansad is like a religious assembly or religious parliament. It was called a Dharam Sansad held in Islamic India. I don't know what they were talking about. What Islamic India? There is no Islamic India. Okay, there is, you know, 1.4 billion people in India. Of them, about 200 plus million Muslims are in India. That's a lot of Muslims. Okay, but there's no Islamic India. This is yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is part of the right-wing fantasy that Hinduism is under threat from these, you know, Muslim hordes or whatever, Mongol Muslim horde, Mughal hordes. I don't know what it is. It's an old paranoia. Used to be a paranoia that said that Muslim birth rates were higher than Hindu birth mm -hmm. rates. So therefore, either have more children or, you know, kill them or whatever. I don't know what, you know, it was quite ghastly, but it's this kind of seam of paranoia that is there in the Hindu hard right. And so this Dharam Sansad was held where these leaders dressed in saffron robes, okay, these pseudo-religious leaders stood there and said, go and kill Muslims. They actually said, go kill Muslims. Yeah, if 20 of you kill 100 of them, they were in that kind of language. Government of India, the government of Uttarakhand, which is a BJP government, they did not arrest these people because this is straight incitement to violence. These people roamed around. Two days later, four or five of these same so-called sadhus went to a police station and they filed a case against the Quran, okay, and against so-called Malvis, meaning Muslims uh, leaders, you know, they filed a case against the Quran. And there's a video of them filing the document, okay. One of the women, she's a sadhvi, she says to the police officer, I hope you're not biased against us, biased on their behalf, their meaning Muslims. One of the other sadhus standing there says, don't worry, he is biased for us. I mean, there's no case against anybody. Like, this is crazy. This is the kind of attempt to create polarization, violence, anxiety, all this stuff. Make it an election about Muslims. That's what the BJP would like to do. It's hardly democratic. You know, this is actually against the Indian constitution, to be completely clear with yeah. you. And it's, and it's so close to that press conference in Florida. You remember where the guy just had a press conference just to burn a Quran? You know, you're like, it's like, I, I get that it's supposed to be some sort of weird hate-filled thing, but I don't even know what you're doing exactly. Right? Like, it's hard to even wrap your head around it. Look, uh, burn a Quran, at least there's something tangible. You've gone to the police station and said, I am going to file a case against the Quran. Right, right. What? There's a little extra what? special surrealism that India puts on it. <laughs> yeah, what yeah, I mean, let's stamp, put a stamp on that form. Do? Like, who do you arrest? Yeah. Do you go and arrest all the Qurans? I mean, what are you supposed to do? Like every single edition of the Quran must be proscribed now. Is that what they want? Censorship of the Quran. That's interesting. Um, well, no, they don't actually. They know they can't get that. They know they can't kill all they the want Muslims. the fight. They want the fight. They want the anxiety among Hindu voters. So they'll come vote in droves and vote back in Yogi Adityanath in Uttar Pradesh, uh, who's a nutcase. Um, the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh is a genuine nutcase. I mean, I, I really, um, many years ago, a leader of the Hindu right came to me, many years, I was a young man. He, he, he's a very senior person, became the home minister of India. He came to me at a gathering and he knew me as a journalist and he said to me, listen, Vijay, you can criticize us as much as you want. If you make fun of us, be careful. 
It's one of the most chilling things a senior politicians ever said to me. If you make fun of us, be careful. Yeah, but I, I, given that warning, I still say that the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh is a nutcase. And, you know, um, Uttar Pradesh deserves better. It deserves rational leadership. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not a modernizer kind of person, you know, anti-tradition or whatever. I'm not that kind of person. But you certainly require some kind of, you know, leadership of a place of 200 million people that subscribes to modern science, that understands, you know, WHO regulations, that knows how to tackle a pandemic. You know, you can't have a modern civilization with people like that in, you know, in charge. I mean, maybe this sounds elitist, but... I, I'm, I, I, it doesn't matter. I, I'm happy to go on the record saying that I would like to have a rational person be in charge of 200 million people. Totally. Uh, look, thank you so much. And we'll definitely want to check in as those elections come closer. Uh, um, but uh, do you have anything you're working on you'd like to tell folks about before I let you go? Well, while you, we are talking, not while we're talking, but just before you called me, yeah. I was finishing up a book that I'm doing with Noam Chomsky called The Withdrawal. Um, the subtitle is explanatory. It's Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and the fragilities of U.S. power. And it's a really exciting book because we are kind of looking back uh, from Vietnam to the present about the ways in which U.S. power is exercised and how weakened it, it has become. Um, now, we don't have a good theory of why it's as weak as it is because that requires a whole different kind of look. But it's a pretty damn good book. And it essentially is a kind of run through Noam's ideas since Vietnam. Um, you know, people will be interested. I asked him a question when we were getting to work on it. I asked him, you know, Noam, where do you get the courage to do this? And he said, I'm not a, I'm, it's not my courage. It's the courage of the Vietnamese. And then he talks about the Tet Offensive. Um, and he tries to explain what courage is and how courage is in you know, Colombian peasants in southern Colombia or courages in the Kurds in southeastern Turkey or courages in the Palestinians. He said, those are three examples of courage, not me, you know, writing books and giving speech. I thought that was such a moving answer. Uh, I'm really proud of this book. Yeah, and it's cool to sort of take something like this on even as we're in the fish tank, sort of seeing it happen in the choke points of power. Uh, how fragile they are, how fragile all these systems are. These things that seem invincible, it takes one boat in the Suez Canal to foul up the whole thing, right? So, uh, Very well said. That was what? The Ever Given or whatever it is. What a great name. Yeah, very, very well said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, look, thanks so much for coming on, VJ. We're always super happy to have you. And uh, shout out to all my people in Barot and Kasampur and uh, in all over UP. <laughs> Ciao. So, three, two, one, go. Cadre cigarettes, that smooth, mild flavor that helps you do the people's business, be a patriot with every puff, and enjoy Cadre cigarettes, sponsors of the committee program. Hmm. All right. Three, two, one. From the Delta to the Falls, from the Grotto to the newly constructed Defense Ministry Building, nothing captures the rhythm of Equatorial Fredonia like Cadre Cigarettes. Never a rough puff with Cadre. Sponsors of the Committee Program. Mm. 
but why is not Jacopo doing this? Uh, he said he didn't totally feel comfortable doing it. Uh, I can see why, honestly. Okay, listen. Oh. Listen, I, comfortable, right? Well, I feel comfortable keeping the lights on on the show because that's the only way it's going to happen is with sponsors and the nice folks at Cadre Cigarettes, uh, of course, being associated with our other clients now, uh, the, uh, the actual Republic of Equatorial Fredonia. Uh, this is a, a, an opportunity for us not only to work with one of our clients in a more cross-cultural way, but also to keep the lights on around here because let me tell you, nobody else is. And unless, unless I have right here, Unless your name is Brooks Holden, Gregory C., Gene Miller. Unless your name is Emily, Ann Wilbur, Michael. Unless you are Kevin or Mary Doubleday. Unless you're Nicholas Hill, you have not been paying to keep the lights around on here either. I may have said the words in that sentence incorrectly. Okay? But they all were words, and they were all words that I meant. So we're going to have a nice holiday special. I don't want to fight. All right? I don't want to fight over the holidays. I don't want to fight about money. I don't want to fight about that. I don't want to talk about comfortable. Okay? I know you're in Africa, and I ask you to dress up in warm clothes because it's the holiday special, and that might not be comfortable. I know Jacopo has some sort of moral ethic around our new sponsor, and that might not be comfortable. But this is show business. All right? We're not always comfortable with the things we have to do to put on a show, but that is what we have come here to do. Is that an inspirational speech? Does that feel good? La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida, sacrificarse hasta la muerte en los campos de batalla de todos los continentes del mundo. Live from West Berlin, it's the Committee Program, the chronicle of the world's most mysterious global political communications agency, starring Julia Doubleday, Forrest Lovett, Fiamma Meli, Javad Castrati, and yours truly, Jacopo Castelletti. Tonight, our Epiphany Day Spectacular with Ellie Mayohagan, Vijay Prashad, Continental Royal and Papal Correspondent, Holly Brett, Elizabeth Dapo and our Puppet Focus Group, and the Committee Orchestra, led by Mild Panning. And now, the man who thinks it's a hump feature, and not a humbug, the reason for the season, Arun Chowdhury. Hi, and welcome to the Epiphany Day Spectacular, a very special episode of the Committee Program, and in fact, one which presages our second season, which is going to start approximately one month from today. We're so glad you could be here with us. Uh, I, I will be absolutely honest. We started out thinking we could have a Hanukkah episode. You know, it was early this year. It was November. And then Christmas happened. And then we missed that. And then we missed Kwanzaa. And then we missed New Year's. Uh, and so we had to do a deeper cut into the calendar. And so uh, today... We're bringing you the Epiphany Day Spectacular, a holiday episode of the committee program. And you know, Jacopo, hi. Yeah. Happy New Year. No, you were, you were, I realized I didn't have anything to toast you with. And then I, I you know, we're starting the new year. I don't know if that's bad luck. I, you know, who knows what that is. Uh, Oh, no. It's but in doing all, I think a lot of people don't know that besides being the uh, verbose announcer from the show, uh, who just, you know, is always just yap, yap, yapping. 
Uh, you're also the creative director of the show, maybe even more importantly, the creative director of the show. And so I saw a lot of interesting sort of holiday things, and I actually wanted to show you one that I was particularly taken with uh, as I was doing all this research on the different holidays and such. And I think, you know, we know that Christmas is a contested time. I'm a warrior on the, in the war, uh, the war on Christmas. M many of us are. Uh, but it has been contested, especially uh, during the Soviet times and with the East Bloc. There was a lot of kind of contesting over what Christmas was, what Christmas would mean, in the same way that when Christians sort of took over the Roman Empire, there was a bit of that with Saturnalius and the pagans and what do we keep? Because there's always been traditionally a holiday this time. Uh, but I was very struck with this image. This is uh, Mos Gorilla, uh, and he uh -huh. is hot proletarian Romanian commie Santa. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Look at that. Yeah, I mean, he he's looks ripped. He looks well. Look, I don't yeah. like Christmas, yeah, he's, he's and definitely. I don't like exercise, but apparently the two things put together is something that I can really get behind. <laughs> and uh, it's sort of, it, this is not unique to Romania, although this sort of hot image a bit is, but it's this really interesting kind of, you know, can we do the folklore uh, of Santa without the Christian stuff? And so Mos Gorilla is sort of Santa for New Year's. He gives the gifts, he does the thing. It's all sort of a bit like that. Uh, and as time went on, he kind of became more regular Santa, but it was somehow still just folkloric and kind of nice in here. Watch, watch this thing. I mean, you'll see by the end, they, oh, they, no, take, yeah, the, I mean, they take the hotness out of him. Uh, well, you, because, I mean, look, you, you, can't you, have, you can't have a good-looking holiday like that. That's just, that's going to lead to dancing. No, no, absolutely. I mean, he, he looks like the doppelganger of the actual Santa we know, so. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. It's, I think it's like a Jack Frost youthful thing meets the gift thing. But, but by the 70s, uh, that kind of becomes just Santa. But they could still evoke the kind of feeling of the holiday time without any of the monikers of uh, Christianity. Here, let's watch. No, no. Here, let's watch. And we can actually talk during it. I'm using new technology we have now so we, we can do this. Uh, and you tell me how similar Romanian is to Italian, because at one point they say Buenos Seren, and, and it was... But you know what I mean? Besides, instead of the reindeer, they have the rabbit, and I find the drawings to be extremely, extremely sweet. Uh, but right, this is pure mainline Christmas, right? This is just absolute pure Christmas. Uh, but it's cool, because it is somehow now divorced from both a commercial reality of anything and also from, uh, you know, the kind of Christian um, underpinnings. Right? Do we have any Italian view? I mean, sorry, we do. If we do we have any Romanian viewers? I would love, actually, for them to tell us more about hot proletarian Christmas. Maybe, yeah. We yeah, we should. We should. So, Jacopo, look, we got a great show tonight. I mean, it is a holiday spectacular, and I think that it is going to be fairly spectacular. We have uh, Vijay Prashad, friend of the show. He's going to come on. He's going to talk to us about what's going on in India, maybe even a little bit about Chile as well. Uh, at this time, I don't know if Ellie Mayo Hagen will be on because we record out of sequence and put together in beautiful Hitchcocking and editing. No one ever knows that we're not live. It's absolutely genius. Uh, we're going to have a puppet focus group, which is going to be incredible. And, and we're going to have Mild Panning, who are a, a band who are going to become, uh, lead our committee orchestra and be a musical guest and come on and play stuff. And that's something that we're going to try to keep going on 
through the rest of the season. So I'm going to get ready for VJ. And it's a Bernie Beanie. It's got a Bernie Beanie. Look, the holidays mean different things to different people. Okay, a, I mean, that's, a, a, that's, that's what the segment is about. A Bernie a Bernini. Oh God! Oh God! This whole this whole Can Mr. Rogers thing where I was gonna do the thing, no, not gonna work because I have the back the headphones. <laughs> it's a spectacular, people. Hi, welcome back to the committee program. And this is our first in the new year Epiphany Day special cross-Atlantic crosstalk on the day of the Epiphany. I said that twice on either end. It's reiterating the message in the beginning and the end. Uh, with us, as always, is the show's own deputy director, Julia Doubleday. Julia. Hello. And she's fresh back from a trip in South America that maybe we'll hear a little bit about. And Ellie Mayo Hagen coming to us from the UK. Uh, Ellie, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, um, I think that was really good comms, by the way, repeating the message. Yeah, yeah you got to get it yeah. in there. You got to get the beginning and the end. I also think it's really bad messaging. I'm like starting off without. Uh, yeah. But uh, um, the Biden just sort of like did the thing that every liberal wanted to do, which is to make the full throated like Donald Trump caused the insurrection speech. And I have to say, I have really mixed giving feelings about it communications wise. But we can talk about that later. Uh, Wanted to like just dig in right away because it's been so long since we saw you, Ellie, with the UK. With look, usually this is sort of this back and forth malaise, spiritual decline, and you know it, it, we have bits of details here and there. But I wanted to ask you generally, right? With Boris Johnson being in so much obvious trouble in Scandal Land, with polls actually having Labour somehow like creeping over. Is there a lot to be optimistic about in terms of, you know, labor being a real vehicle for the, the progressive left in the UK? Or, you know, is this just sort of Starmer stumbling into something they're still kind of messing about with all the wrong things? I mean, where do you think we're at? Because we do see reasons to be more optimistic than the last time we spoke, for sure. Yeah, so I think uh, one thing that we can learn from the Corbyn years is that uh, the the sort of establishment in Britain often acts like an orchestra. It sort of comes, all the pieces come together to sort of play a piece. And in the Corbyn years, the, the piece they were play, playing was, if you vote for this guy, you're an idiot. Um, and, you know, and then people didn't vote for him. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that that was the only reason that people didn't vote for him. No, no, that's reductive, but that certainly is, is yeah. it. Yeah, they yeah. did that here um, too. It's yeah. a good analogy. Yeah, yeah and so, What's happening, what's interesting to me at the moment is that all this stuff has come out about Boris Johnson, about uh, the number 10 Downing Street having Christmas parties when they shouldn't have been, um, about um, them giving contracts to their friends, government contracts to their friends, um, you know, about his Downing Street flat being refurbished and him um, apparently being dishonest about it. Yeah, it's fairness, corruption kind of uh, yeah. stuff. Yeah, and what's yeah. interesting to me is that all of this happened like a year ago, but it's all coming out now, you know, and so, and now uh, someone who's been um, earmarked to replace him, Liz Trust, all of a sudden there are really bad stories about her coming out. So I think something somewhere has changed in terms of uh, how favourable Boris Johnson is in terms of like being a member of the establishment. I think he was sort of previously seen um, 
by the conservatives and by the media is untouchable and now all of a sudden he's getting the Jeremy Corbyn treatment in the sense that you know the way that you signal your sensibleness is you say that he's beyond the pale um so I think there's something interesting going on there and in terms of labor whether labor can benefit from that I mean I do think that uh the polling is real like the dip that the conservatives have experienced across the board Mm -hmm. on every issue, um, including who's best prime minister. I think that's real. Um, It's been, the dip has been sustained for a while now. And they got walloped in this by-election by the Libs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that did seem to be a sort of tactical move because that was another scandal was this particular MP tried to evade accountability. They tried to like let him off and then it created public outrage so then he resigned so it does seem to be the case that voters in North Shropshire which was his seat kind of banded together to vote vote out the Conservatives so um, basically I think that it's real the sort of anti the turning against the Tories is real the question is whether Keir Starmer can capitalise uh, from that. And I think there's a long way to go until the election. I, it definitely won't happen until 2024 now because then the Tories aren't guaranteed to win it. But I think, um, so we don't, I don't know, but I think there is a chance that Keir Starmer could just kind of sit there and wait and like say, I'm not Boris Johnson and the kind of hope to win by default. I think that is a possibility. Um, I don't think that he... We saw that movie very recently in the United States. Yeah, exactly. But I think what you've seen, right, is like how unsustainable that is. And what precarious victory it is if you win that way. And I think so um, Keir Starmer had a like a launch speech earlier this week, which was like his sort of 17th relaunch of his leadership. I'm exaggerating. It wasn't 17, (laughs) but, you know, it feels like it. Yeah, yeah, and his the slogans that he used in this relaunch were different to the slogans that he used in Labour conference, which was only three months ago. So, you know, what I think what we're seeing in his leadership is like no obvious direction, no obvious vision for the country. He's not saying to people, this is where I'm going to take you if I'm prime minister. This is where I want the country to go. Instead, he's kind of just like messing around with a few themes, chopping and changing. And I think really his strategy is just be a safe pair of hands uh, and just kind of wait until the Tories sort of um, excuse themselves from office eventually. And I think there is a good chance that what will emerge from that will be that he will be prime minister of a minority government with the SNP and some other parties. I don't think what we'll see is a 1997 Tony Blair victory. Um, and I think, yeah, you you know better than I do about the sort of risks and damage that come with like waiting to win right. by default. Because and where in the power. pecking order uh, also the progressive agenda comes in in winning like that without a mandate on issues from voters yeah. who actually have voted for something. Exactly. So so I think that's where we're at at the moment. Uh, talking about being in uh, kind of dealing with the results of precarious elections and precarious positions, Julia. What's going on in America? I don't even, you know, the the supply chain, I don't even get news okay, across so the internet anymore. You have to tell me first, I want to speak to... you. still have a republic? As of today, yes. Um, I still, I, I want to speak to what Ellie was talking about, though, which is that Biden and the Democrats got in because people were so afraid of what Trump was doing and so fed up with Trump and so 
um, essentially threatened into having to vote for the Democrats. Um, We all did it out of a sense of duty and responsibility to keep Trump from being in office. Um, And I think there's a world in which the Democrats could say, okay, you know, this is it. This is our big chance. We have to prove that we, you know, although the public thinks we're just this sort of um, useless, do-nothing alternative, we can do a lot of good stuff for people and then we can get reelected. Of course, that's not the way they looked at it. They got into office and according to them, it's because they're geniuses and it's because everyone loves them, which is totally delusional. I don't know like how you could possibly think this, um, but I mean, they're they're in a bubble. They really are just in a bubble. And I think, I don't know what the mood is on the Hill, but I feel like Biden's team doesn't seem to understand the urgency of like doing anything to show that, you know, it's worthwhile to have Democrats in power. Right now we're in the midst of the worst COVID surge ever. Um, It's a great microcosm of why people feel like there's no material difference between the Democrats and the Republicans. The COVID crisis is just this great microcosm of a lot of things in our society. Um, But in particular, the way that capitalism handles social and public crises. So under Republicans, what we saw is total lack of care um, over whether people were dropping dead of this thing. And we elected the Democrats because they promised, they said, we have a way to fix it, you know, in no uncertain terms. There are a lot of tweets that are resurfacing from during the campaign from Biden and Harris saying, any president who lets this many people die on his watch should resign. And any president who doesn't have a plan to end COVID should resign. And when we get into office, we're going to fix COVID. Not like, you know, any sort of like uh, uh, ambiguous promise. This is a very, very straightforward promise that we have a plan to deal with COVID and get it under control. That's clearly false. So Biden's been in power for about a year. We're almost up to a million dead at this point. I mean, I think we're about to hit, I think we're around 850,000. I say almost because mm-hmm. 900,000, a million, like it's going to happen. So, uh, For me and for a lot of people, watching this sort of like slow motion train wreck is just further further evidence that under this system where you have to prioritize the economy above human lives, you just can't implement policy that is helpful to people. You can have different rhetoric. Biden has very different rhetoric from Trump. Biden is encouraging people to get vaccinated and wear masks, even though, Mm -hmm. let's be real, Masks are sold out in a lot of places. People don't know that they need an N95. People don't know how to get a test now because tests are sold out in a lot of places. Um, We're just letting this disaster get worse and worse and worse. And there's no plan. I mean, I was arguing with sort of more middle of the road Democrats about it. And they're like, well, Biden thinks this and Biden does this. And I'm like, but when you're talking about how things affect people materially, 400,000 people were dead when Biden came into office. Now 850,000 people are dead. So what changed? That's not good. <laughs> right. At some point, it's your war. Right? At some point, like, it's your you war. Know, I mean, you, yeah. we can argue about like, oh, well, if it weren't for the anti-vaxxers. Well, the anti-vaxxers are there. So you need to have a policy to deal with them. I mean, 
And in the same rates as many countries in Europe, as we were all shocked to discover. You also to can't. You also cannot do this thing where you say, "Well, Trump had the power to end the pandemic," and then when Biden gets in, and I say, "Why can't he do a vaccine mandate in this way or that way?" and you say, "Well, that's not constitutional. That's you can't make that law." Well, then the president can't fix it. Like you can't. You can't argue both ways that Trump could have fixed it, but Biden doesn't have the power to fix it. One is true. Like they can't both be true. So, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it's funny, kind of, with Trump uh, and his team versus even, like, Boris Johnson and his team. Uh, if if Trump had still been in power, I feel like he has a bit of that sort of, like, populist energy. But, like, Ellie, I find in the communications coming out of, uh, especially from the prime minister and stuff, there is what in America would be the quiet part loud, which is like, no, the economy kind of has to be going. We do prioritize this sometimes for these reasons. Do you think that actually resonates, though? Like, uh, you know... I think off the top of our heads, we're like, oh, that sounds cold and calculating. But if you're like a, you know, a lower middle class shop uh, owner, is this resonating with you as being like, this guy kind of gives a shit about, you know, what my family's going through? So at the start of the pandemic, there was definitely this sense of, I was in like a few focus groups um, and there's definitely this sense of like, let's cut the government some slack. This is a crazy situation. We've never lived through this before. You know, I wouldn't know what to do in this position, in their position. So why should they? There was definitely that feeling and there was a lot of like rally around the flag support the country support the government that kind of thing yeah yeah and then since then it's sort of gone um it's become uh like the public were always always much more interested in lockdowns than the government always wanted to prioritize stopping covid over the economy and and at different points there's been like self-imposed lockdowns so in the run-up to christmas Loads of people just cancelled their plans. One restaurant near me lost every single booking for two weeks. There was no restrictions, but people just started doing that. Um, and then, and then we had the story about uh, Christmas parties, about the the um, prime minister and various different government government departments and so on uh, throwing Christmas parties and basically breaking the rules when they were telling everybody else to follow the rules so they'd get arrested. And I think that that just completely changed that. Plus, I think a feeling that we were out of the woods and then Omicron happening. Those two things combined completely changed people's opinions. And then they started to become sick of lockdowns and just wanting life to go back to normal. And I think um, and only anecdotally from speaking to people in my family and speaking to people I know about their families, I think a a lot of the anger at the government has manifested in a generalized mistrust of the establishment, which has kind of manifested in like vaccine hesitancy. Um, You know, people saying, well, why do we need to get vaccinated three times in a year? And the vaccine's really new, so how can we trust it? You know, um, and I- Doesn't seem that great. Yeah, and I think what people, I'm feeling frustrated that they're being coerced into things. I think, um, think, and I think as well, if if I can be like self-critical as well, I think another element of that is that the left, I mean, I know that we've been in lockdown and, you know, the left in this country has been mourning a general election defeat, although I think for too long. But, um, but you know, basically the left uh, and the Labour Party has not really uh, spoken to those people or given them an explanation as to why things are the way they are. But the people that have have been like conspiracy theorists. Um, so while we don't have like the QAnon problem that, that you have to the same degree that you have it, we ask, I am starting to see in my life 
that everyone I know has at least one person in their life that is starting to flirt with this kind of stuff. So yeah. in terms of how the public see it, I wouldn't say that the public are like, oh, we've got to prioritize the economy. I think it's more like a, just a general fed upness that has been uh, exacerbated by the, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but like shitty behavior of our government. Yeah, 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 you yeah. can say shitty. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, is what Julie's saying. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so here we've had a few sort of like big moments recently in the press. One was, I don't know if you guys were following this, but the CDC came out with, they've been coming out with new guidelines all the time. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, there was among a certain group of like establishment liberals, this idea of like, well, these government institutions know what they're talking about. We need to listen to the science. We need to listen to the science. And the science is sort of equated to the CDC. And the CDC just put out this guideline um, that said, you know, we used to say that if you have COVID, you have a positive test that you need to quarantine for 10 days. But we changed our mind. You can just quarantine for five days now. And you don't need a negative test to go to, back to work. In fact, don't take another test. Don't You don't need to do that. We'd prefer We'd actually if prefer you, if you check. didn't check. So, um, and this happened the day after the CEO of Delta Airlines went and talked to the Biden White House. And the reason that the airlines wanted this rule changed is that so many people got COVID so quickly that hundreds and hundreds of flights all over the country are being canceled. Not because there's any sort of lockdown, because everybody's sick and there's no one to fly the planes. So Delta went to the White House and said, I really need my people to come back to work faster. You know, if they have COVID, that's okay. Just bring them back to work. And the CDC said, yes, the disease changed. It, it doesn't last as long now. Don't check on this, but go back to work. And this hasn't been the only um, rule change in the last couple of weeks where it's pretty clear that they're going to do anything to keep everything open, yeah. to keep that economy running. There's also been this thread of, dare I say it, misinformation that's happening in uh, places like the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, so what we saw with Omicron is this really, really fast exponential growth, really like much faster than any other wave that we've seen. So in DC, I can use that as an example because I was following the numbers every day. Uh, the 15th was the first day I think we got to around 300. The 16th, we got to 500 something and our all all pandemic record was around 500 people. So we broke our all pandemic record on that Thursday. On the 17th, we had over 800 cases. Over the following weekend, we had over 1,000 cases a day. Now we're at a point where we're having over 2,000 cases a day, although it has sort of stabilized more. My The point that I'm making here is that when that really massive ramp up starts to happen all across the country, the New York Times and all of these other major media outlets were misleadingly, whether on purpose uh, to carry water for Biden or accidentally because they still don't understand exponential growth um, three years into the pandemic, uh, they were reporting that cases are going way, way up super fast, but hospitalizations aren't going up at all. And there's a very obvious explanation for this. It's that People don't go to the hospital the same day they get diagnosed. And when you have exponential growth and it's doubling every couple of days, you would need to look at the people who were diagnosed 12 days ago and compare that number to the hospitalizations. So is this purposeful? Is this not? 
it seems really weird to me to think that they don't understand that that's a delayed metric. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is that this week, we're finally getting the wave of hospitalizations. So now, after weeks of them saying, Omicron's so mild, there's not even more hospitalizations, guys. Go back to work, go back to work. We're getting a massive, massive hospitalization wave that's just starting, and it's starting to overwhelm our hospitals. And the thing they keep saying now in the press is, hospitalizations are up, but there aren't that many deaths. This is a second lagging metric. (laughs) So are they doing this again on purpose because they want to keep the help keep the economy open? Is it just a weird groupthink thing where that's where everyone what everyone else is saying? I'm honestly just totally confused at this point how they can keep putting this stuff in print. But I keep getting messages from the New York Times. Yesterday I got one about how Omicron is milder, which to be clear, based on all the evidence we have at this point, Yes, it is milder. Um, but they said something in the newsletter about fewer hospitalizations. What they mean is for the amount of people that have it, fewer people are going to the hospital. But because it's 10 times like as many people totals, that have it, actually what matters the when you total have number of people yeah. in the hospitals yeah, yeah, yeah. is much larger and it's still getting larger. So is it responsible at a time when the hospitalization population is probably going to peak higher than it's ever been to say there are fewer hospitalizations? Is that a clear way to communicate what's happening? Um, They also sent me a newsletter yesterday about this horrible, horrible thing that's happening. The worst crisis of the pandemic, as we all know, is that kids are having to go to class over Zoom. And right now there's this massive push among the political punditry to make sure that the nation's kids go back to school in person, even though we've had two years, the filtration systems in these schools and the infrastructure in these schools has not been updated. It has not been made more safe for them. And in some places it's insane. And they're developing, or sorry, they're protecting themselves and their children. So for example, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, there's a new rule that if you want to be in a room with Jen Psaki uh, during her press conferences, they only allow, I can't remember if it's 12 or 19, some very small number of reporters into the room, and you have to be tested, and you have to have the N95 mask. That's the rule if you want to be around the press secretary who is triple vaccinated. Everyone else in the room is triple vaccinated. Then she gets up there and says, it's safe for your eight-year-old to go be in a room with 60 other eight-year-olds who probably aren't wearing their masks right, probably don't have N95, definitely aren't tested, may not be vaccinated. That's totally safe. So the imagery there is very damning. If that was actually safe, you would not mind having 60 people in the room with you, but you do. Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, has been pushing really hard against our teachers' unions. So our teachers' unions, um, such as they are, have been like, look, we have demands if you want to reopen. The kids have to get tested. The kids have to have masks. Pretty, like, just reasonable fucking demands. Uh, Lori Lightfoot has been pushing back on everything and told the teachers, if you don't come into work, uh, like, on the 3rd of January during this massive, massive, massive surge, you're not getting paid. Like, end of story. Meanwhile, Lori Lightfoot's daughter is in private school, and her daughter is doing remote learning. Her daughter's school is remote. yeah, it's it's this hypocritical stuff that is is the stuff that like the voters really see because it's really simple. Where it's like rules for you, and, rules, and for, rules me, for me, rules for you, rules for me. Um, and the other thing I think we have to um, talk about when it comes to the schooling thing is that 
the press all the, all of a sudden is like, oh my God, like the learning loss. That's what we care about. It's not the economy. It's not that we want their parents to have to go to work. It's the learning loss. And it's like, if you motherfuckers cared about learning loss among poor kids, I have a fucking idea. Why don't you send every one of their parents $40,000? That's $2,000 a month for the last two years. I bet that that education gap is going to be significantly uh, significantly narrowed by their parents getting a $40,000 check. Why don't we fucking do that if you care about learning loss? It's just like the sort of whole oil industry thing of like, we can't have clean energy because what about the jobs? It's like, if you guys could automate those jobs away tomorrow, you would. It's not about the jobs and it's not about the kids. Let's be fucking clear. It's about the economy. Yes, it always it is. Always is. Uh, you know what it means when the heat kicks on in Julie's room. That means we're out of time. <laughs> Wait, no, I have one more thing. <laughs> that would be cool if we could read. Oh, okay. Let me okay. not make fun of Nate Silver for his tweet. Are you serious? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Take us out. Take us out with a Nate rant. Okay, so Nate Silver has been my worst enemy since around 2015, 2016. Um, Let's make it more interesting. Since grade school. Since grade school. It's not school. true, but we're going to make it more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Or we yeah, might be the same better. age. I don't yeah. know. He looks like 20 years older than me, but. Being wrong ages you. Um, anyway, this man yesterday decided to tweet that school closures, the school closures where kids have to learn from home on Zoom, are worse than the Iraq war. They're worse than the Iraq war. It is worse than killing one million Iraqis for a kid to have to learn on Zoom. And he hasn't deleted it yet. I just want us all to sit with that for a moment. No, Nate Silver, uh, you know, pandemic expert has certainly been uh, a a Twitter phenomenon. I just want to like also connect this to my age old hatred of Nate Silver. So first of all, you know what a monkey's paw is, Ellie, when you wish on the monkey's paw and you get your oh, wish, yeah. but then like horrible shit happens. I yeah. caused the pandemic because I had a monkey's paw wish that everyone in the world would realize that Nate Silver is stupid and then this happened and this is everybody has realized it but we're all at what at cost, what cost? Yeah. it was me at what so cost me but the thing with Nate Silver is that people always frame his shit as like well first of all he can never be wrong because when he he predicts that Trump has a 30% chance of winning the election and then Trump wins his boosters will tell you it's because a percentage means that in Three out of 10 worlds, Trump won the election. So that just means we're living in one of the three out of 10 universes, which means that he could never be wrong about anything. Because if he gave a 99% chance to everything, we would just be living in the one alternate universe. Well, I did just see Spider-Man uh, <laughs> with my family. So I think he's just looking for the one in which he has a full, robust head of hair. And I understand. So the way that he tries to back off of being wrong is that he says, I was just aggregating the data, which, by the way, means he just puts a bunch of polls together. I was just aggregating the data. So it wasn't me. It was the data. I'm not, I'm not a pundit. But like, for example, here's a quote from September 10th, 2015. Nate Silver. And it, and, okay. Nate Silver. Go ahead. Go ahead. Calm down. Donald Trump won't win the GOP nomination. That's not a statistic. That's him being condescending and rude about people who were rightfully concerned about our descent into fascism. Calm down, says Nate Silver. I have something to say and I'm wrong. 
So send in your own essay <laughs> contest and why you don't like Nate Silver. Care of Julia Doubleday to committee program at gmail.com. We could. Appreciate you so much. And Ellie, thank you for coming on. Julia, thank you for coming on. And let's have a good year if we can, right? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Everyone did the head thing. Yeah. Everyone's doing the Indian head thing. Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah. Sounds good. Check, check, check. Mommy made me mash my M&M's. Sibilance. Sibilance and cigarettes. Okay, is there anything coming up in here that I should know about, or should I just proceed through? Um, I don't think you need to know anything beforehand. Just, just do it. That's right. There's nothing to do but to do it. Okay. But the, like your, your uh, hat beanie thing... Half of it matches the drapes in the background, so it, it looks like you just have half of one on. It's disappearing? I like it. Oh, no. Well, this is actually the work of uh, Madeline Valley, who's quite a fine artist uh, from Washington, D.C., uh, Ohio, originally. And I should just give her a shout-out while I'm showing off the hat. Perfect match. Way to go. <laughs> Hi, welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Arun Chaudhary, and this is your Global News Rodeo, a segment in which we take uh, a quick look at some world news, and then we often look at some polls, uh, and the whole thing is curated by the show's own Forrest Levette. Let's go. <laughs> Item one, more fuel to the fire, government resigns in Kazakhstan. Deutsche Welle is reporting deadly clashes in Kazakhstan's largest city, Almaty. The silent demonstrations come after a new law, which came into effect on January 1st, which ended price controls on fuel. At least eight police and National Guard troops have been killed, as well as dozens of civilians. I would have put that in the reverse order. In response to the escalating crisis, the government of Prime Minister Oskar Mamin resigned. Flights from major airlines in the Middle East and Europe have been halted to the country, and a Russian-led alliance, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, has sent in troops. President Tokayev has called protesters terrorist gangs and has declared a nationwide emergency and curfew. Uh, I do want to say some of the troops that are headed there are actually from Belarus, um, which is sort of an interesting way for Putin to demonstrate his international power, legitimacy, the Lukashenko regime. So it all, it all gets mixed up into one thing. It all gets mixed up. <laughs> Item two, hard day's night. Thousands want Blair's knighthood stripped. Al Jazeera is reporting that hundreds of thousands have collectively called for former British PM Tony Blair's recent knighthood to be revoked. Citing support for the Iraq War, over 700,000 signatures have signed an online petition as of Thursday. The petition states Tony Blair caused irreparable damage to both the Constitution of the United Kingdom and to the very fabric of the nation's society. He was personally responsible for causing the death of countless innocent civilian lives and servicemen in various conflicts. Blair, once the head of the Labour Party, is unpopular on both sides in a current YouGov poll, with 56% of Labour voters opposing his knighthood and 79% of conservative voters doing the same. I mean, that is rough, but well, well-deserved. The kind of reflexive, I mean, I wonder if they give it to all the prime ministers and so it's just a thing, but like the fact that they just reflexively, that elites have to celebrate and praise elites at all time 
is one of the kind of biggest blind spots that our media has because they like to be in the club with those elites. And so it feels good to make sure that you keep the proper amount of praise where it's supposed to go. But I find it disheartening and I think a lot of you do too. Item three, puppet on a string. Sudan prime minister resigns amid turmoil. The socialist workers reporting that Sudanese prime minister Abdallah Hamduk has resigned following another round of mass street protests. Hamduk stepped down this past Saturday, which also saw three people killed as a result of a crackdown by security forces. The exiting PM was accused of brutal opposition and called a puppet with no mass support by the pro-democracy forces. A coup last October set the stage for mass demonstrations with 57 civilians being killed since that time. With the US, Britain, Saudi Arabia, and the UN backing Hamdok, the Sudan resistance will now have to speak support from outside the international community. Item four, you heard it here first on your committee program, Silvio Berlusconi among those vying for president of Italy. Not just us now, but Euronews is reporting Silvio Berlusconi will once again be on lawmakers' ballots for the January 24th election that was just said. Current Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi is also up for the position, uh, but the center-right will, of course, strongly back uh, XPM Berlusconi. However, not everyone is up for the 85-year-old. There was just big protests uh, in Rome this past weekend by the Purple People uh, in response to the cases around the Bunga Bunga parties, which involve prostitutes. Berlusconi is inevitably always in a lot of trouble. Uh, the group was formed in 2009 to oppose then Prime Minister Berlusconi. And even though the Italian presidency is considered honorary, the president can still have influence and play a role in the event of a government crisis. And this, this is me editorializing at the end now, happens more often than not in Italy. So who the president is matters quite a bit. It matters quite a bit. I personally, you know, I, I am, a lot of people are big Draghi fans, so, it, you know, it doesn't behoove me to come out strongly and saying I'm not a big Draghi guy, but I'm not a big Draghi guy, and I don't like uh, this kind of non-elected um, technocratic uh, idea that, that he represents. Um, and so I have sort of mixed feelings about him using that and elevating to the presidency, but I also sort of would like the prime ministership to be cleared for someone as part of a democratic process, so I, I don't know. It's, Italy, it's Italian politics. It's a mess. You'll hear about it here. We'll have people on. We should do a panel just on this. We will. Item five, Nuevo Presidenta. Chile elects new constitutional president. Al Jazeera is reporting that Chile has elected a new president of their constitutional assembly, epidemiologist Maria Alisa Quinteros. Newly elected Chilean president, Gabriel Boric, welcomed Quinteros as she and the assembly are tasked with drafting a new constitution following the Pinochet era. Boric said on Twitter, the, there are times when good and hopeful news emerges from difficult situations, and I believe this to be one of them. Count on me, President, to collaborate 100% with the constituent process. The redraft could bring major changes to the country, and there are many who are hopeful for the new constitution, including environmental activists, indigenous leaders, and we're actually going to have two different guests that we can talk to about this uh, on the program in the very near future, if not tonight. One is Vijay Prashad. Uh, who is in Chile and knows a lot of these folks, and again, friend of the show, Barbara Sepulveda, who has spent a lot of time with Julie in Chile on the ground and who has, a, 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 as one of the constitutional folks reforming the Constitution, has a, a unique perspective on this. So we look forward to bringing you more on this and other matters. Thank you so much.
All right, y'all ready? Yeah. Yeah. This is our first time doing this. I'm actually, I'm actually pretty excited about it. Uh, so I will say, Community Orchestra, led by Mild Panning, Josh Crothers, uh, and Ray Loki, uh, New York's finest post-hardcore improvisational outfit. I'm not sure everyone's gonna know what that means. We've kind of a global news audience. Well, They're really our, into our like- genre is professional. BBC. Yeah, we're, we're pro. Uh, are, are you smoking again? Uh, that we have a, a, the Cadre Cigarettes is the national cigarette of Fredonia. They're our new sponsor because, look, the show isn't paying for itself. I'm going to tell you that right now. So I'm actually hoping this improvisational thing, I'm hoping this doesn't use too many notes because, like, you know, we have so many in our subscription with Adobe, and that's going to be the end of it. Wait, so you, well, did, keep I mean, it down. Late, lately we're trying to go between three and five. So there's only six notes, right? I don't want to put a number on it. From the Delta to the Falls, from the Grotto to the newly constructed Defense Ministry Building, nothing captures the rhythm of Equatorial Fredonia like Cadre Cigarettes. Never a rough puff with Cadre, sponsors of the Committee Program. And now, introducing the Committee Orchestra led by Mild Panning, who are Josh Carruthers, uh, a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, who uh, we played with bands for many years, even decades. Uh, Ray Loki, who I've had the chance to meet at least twice. Let's be very honest about that. And they are New York's finest post-hardcore professional, professionally improvisational outfit. Professional improvisationally out improvisating outfit. You know, I promised Ray I would do a better job at this than I did, but that's how it's going. Happy Epiphany Day, y'all. Take it away.
Hi, y'all, and welcome back to the committee program's Epiphany Day Spectacular. So far, it has been pretty spectacular, but now we're going to kick it up a notch. And the way we're going to do that is by bringing you on the inside of some of the work that we do here at committee in terms of political communications, not just in terms of informing you about the global word. So every New Year's, post-New Year's, this kind of area, we start bringing in people, asking them questions, and really seeing what makes them tick. And today we have uh, Frank and Jesse and Monica. Hello. Uh, they are from all over. Uh, and we really appreciate you joining us. Uh, it's excellent for us to get your opinions, and we appreciate your time. We really do. Oh, thank you. We we really appreciate that gift card for that cotton of cigarettes you gave us. Thank Cadre you. Cadre cigarettes, yes, they're the new sponsors for the show. But we have stacks of that around, so please do make sure you do turn that in. Delicious. I gotta make sure I find that card again. Uh, look, we're trying to make sure we're in a safe space where people can say anything they want to, anything that comes to them, because it's important for us to get the real truth. Uh, can we say uh, racist stuff? Yeah, if that's how you feel, I, I mean, it's helpful. It's helpful for us to be racist? No, 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 if that's how you feel, it's helpful for us to know that's how you feel, yeah. Um, uh, I'm not particularly racist. I'm not sure that I can help. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Yeah, I'm a little racist. I, I got you. No, 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 no. Nobody has to be racist. Okay. Nobody has to be unracist. Oh. Just be as racist as you feel like you need to be to be your uh, uh, best self, oh. to be yourself, to be yourself. Just let me know when it's time. Yeah. Okay, first we're gonna to react to statements, yeah. and I will say a statement, and you say if you strongly agree, if you somewhat agree, if you strongly disagree, if you somewhat agree, or if you have no opinion. How does that seem? Uh, I disagree. Uh, 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 no, no opinion. I, yeah, I guess I strongly agree. Mm -hmm. Just just like that. that, that that's gonna be good. So, so let's get started, I got, I got the questions. So, uh, look, COVID, pandemic, have you changed your work-life priorities and balance post-lockdowns and the economic shutdowns that have happened over the last two years? Uh, no, I, I disagree. Pandemic, COVID, lockdown, have I changed anything? Work-life balance? I, uh... uh I'll go, I'll say no, huh. uh, no, final answer. L let me put it in a different way. Pandem pandemic, pandemic, blah, blah, blah. the pandemic has shown a bright light on structural inequality. Mm. Uh, the recovery must speak to those needs. How, how do you react to that? Uh, no, I, I disagree. Must strongly speak to those needs, yeah. Uh -huh. When do we get to the racist stuff? Uh, let, let's try something different. Let's try just free-flowing answers. Why don't we just sort of let you all riff? So, Monica, for instance, is there anything that happened to you this year that's emblematic of where you're at, you know, holistically, spiritually, oh, uh, you know? Uh, yes, I went to the store earlier this year, and as I was walking down the street like this, <laughs> I saw so many people wearing masks. And I thought to myself, why are those people standing in line for the grocery store? And 
then I saw a bird fly by, and it was very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Oh, yeah, I like birds. Oh, me too. Yeah. No, I disagree. Does Does anyone have, have anything else on something that, that happened to them this year? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I was wondering if I could get a refill on my prescription. You see, my hip has really been hurting <gasps> lately. Ever since oh. I had that surgery a few weeks oh, ago, this bed has really given me a crick in my spine that I can't seem to get rid of anymore. No matter how many times I take laps around the nursing home, it's never enough. So I think if I could just get a couple more pills, that would make me feel better. That, that's hey. very true. Make you feel better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Thank yeah you. I disagree. Uh, so I'm putting you down as, as healthcare being being an issue for for you, uh, Frank. What's on what's on your yeah, mind? It's, uh, it's time now. Right? Safe space for some some real talk. Yeah. Ooh, uh, okay. Look, y'all. It's actually time. What it's actually time for is for us to wrap up because that's all the time that we've allotted for this Scorpius group. Uh, and unless you have something really upsetting, Frank, that you're going to say, you all should feel free to put any thoughts you have. You know, you have my signal, you have my telegram, you have all of those things. And uh, look, thanks for participating in this committee program focus group. And again, the opinions you give us, we put into messaging that helps folks like you do better in elections. Oh, thank you. So it's really, it's for your benefit. I'm going to go smoke some cigarettes now. Thank you again. <laughs> Enjoy your cadres. Um. How do you turn this off? Mary, how do you turn this off just again? The, the button on the, you just. No, I can't, I can't figure it I out. I'm going to hang up on you guys. Gotta, I'm sorry. I've, no, I have to charge my here. mouse. Committee. Committato. Committed. Committato. Carule. Committee. We're young. We're submitting. We're committing. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Arun Chaudhary. And now, with us once again, and for our Epiphany Day Spectacular, is Holly Brett, our royal, I was trying to think of what our crazy title for you is. Uh, it is our continental royal and papal correspondent, a title of which you must be extremely pleased with, considering if you had to report to us about what was going on with all the freaking royal stuff from Prince Andrew all the way down, you know, English royal stuff all the way down to, uh, uh, who were the two who left? You know, the Nazi one and then um, uh, the one from the show, from Suits. Meghan Markle and Harry. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's, the whole thing is a mess. It is a mess, it is a mess, and I'm quite pleased to be here. They left Europe, yeah. all right? Ow. If they wanted to be covered by the show, they should have thought about that. Yeah, they really should have. But what we were talking about, what we have been talking about, and we're continuing to talk about uh, right now are the Habsburgs, uh, who are, of course, an ancient, powerful family, but whose uh, kind of style and actual physical presence on the continent continues. Uh, and you have to remind us where we were. It's been a little while. You know, we were on hiatus. I don't think we've even spoken since October. Yeah, I think that's right. 
Um, so where we left off last time was the assassination of Albert I. And I do think that it's an appropriate place to pick off from in order to understand what's going on today. So after the assassination of Albert I, the family was in a period of time in which they actually lost power and really had some trouble gaining it back. They lost their home territory in Swabia, in Switzerland, due to the Swiss Confederacy moving in. And they were unable to regain the Bohemian crown on a hereditary basis until 1626. So we have to look at this period of time and ask, how did this family make a comeback in order to become the most powerful rulers of Europe for centuries to come? And in order to answer that question, we have to look at a very critical period of time in the Habsburg family, which is the Leopoldian and Albertinian split. So right. even though some members of the family really wanted to keep the Habsburg land intact, others understood that it was important to divide and conquer. They wished to split the family's lands into two separate entities. So the brothers, Albert III and Frederick III, actually did just this with the Treaty of Newburgh. The Treaty of Newburgh effectively split the lands in two. So Albert got Austria proper, which was called Niederösterreich, and then Leopold got a, another part of Austria called Oberösterreich, which included inner... All right, all right. Hold, I just stop you there for okay, one second. Okay. Because number one, you don't, you don't just come on the show pronouncing German like super correctly <laughs> while I'm like here in Berlin, like not speaking. You don't do that. That's, that's, not, that's not how it goes down here. And, uh, and number two, uh, is this sort of like the split, like is this sort of where the, the Swiss kind of political world becomes different than the rest of the Germanic political world? Is that why we see, you know, there's elections in Switzerland of bananas. Like committee has failed to work on any elections in, in Switzerland because they don't, that's... It's a whole Canton situation. Yeah. This is the Canton situation. Exactly. I do think that the instability that you see historically and the Swiss Confederacy moving in is deeply related to the kind of issues that we see today in modern I know what's Europe. going on. People say I don't pay attention. People say I sleep through this sometimes, which is just a misreading of their visual cues. Yeah. But see, I know what's going on. Yeah. All right, please continue. Yeah, you get it. Yeah. So... Uh, I'm sorry for the German, by the way. I just, it's, they, they were. No, 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 that's okay. It's just, you know what I mean? It's, it's hard. Uh, it's it hard is hard. Me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that to, to get into why we see what's going on today, um, we can look at how both lines actually managed to have some success while they were split apart. Right. So the Albertinian line managed to marry back into the German royalty. That's because Albert V married Elizabeth of Luxembourg. Albert thereby became king of Bohemia, once again adding the territory back into Habsburg control. For her part, Elizabeth of Luxembourg was really d***ed because she had been promised the queenship and co-ability to rule, but when it really came around to it, uh, the electors only passed uh, approval for Albert V. Albert, very shortly after, was named king of the Romans. And more importantly, uh, the Leopoldian line also found success separately in improving the family's fortunes. So a member of the family, Frederick III, was elected to succeed Albert II of, as King of the Romans. And what's more, he achieved something that no member of his family had done in such a long time, despite trying very hard and failing to do so. 
which was getting the approval of the Pope. The Pope officially coronated. Ah. Yes, yes, it's true. So this is the moment when the Habsburgs were able to get in with an alliance with the Pope. And this alliance ends up lasting for many centuries, despite some conflicts here and there. Ultimately, the Habsburgs remained allied with the papacy through the Protestant Reformation. And so this was the beginning of a very, very important You think, you think the race car guy, you think the race car guy could actually get uh, Pope, Pope Peace guy on the phone? I think he might be able to. I think he might be able to. You never really know what connections these people keep in secret. And till to this day. Mm. Yeah. And the Habsburgs and the papacy in this moment were allied specifically against the conciliar movement, right? So the conciliar movement was, of course, the movement within the Catholic Church in the 14th through the 16th centuries to take power away from the Pope and to place mm. power of the Catholic Church into a council that would be separate and opposed to the Pope. Of course, the Pope did not like this, and this conflict emerged from the Western Schism, right? Which is when there were two rival Popes, one in Rome, one in Antigone. So in order to resolve this conflict and to determine who actually had power in, within the Catholic Church, there were these counter-movements. It could really be seen as sort of like a predecessor to the Protestant Reformation. But ultimately, the conciliar movement was defeated with the establishment of the papacy in the early 1500s. So that so th this is a good thing for the Habsburgs then? This is a good thing. Because their, their buddies are rising in the world. Yes, this is a very good thing. Um, and after... They bet on the right horse. They did, they did. And after Nicholas V, the Pope, crowned Frederick III as Holy Roman Emperor, the Habsburg family was able to hold on to the throne almost continuously until 1806. Do you think, do I think, does one of us think that if a modern European Republic was going to swap back to being a monarchy, that they would try to have the Pope actually do the crowning? I think they would. I think they would. Because it's sort of, it's actually one of the few things you can reach for in the toolbox that's still there that like has any kind of. It's still a symbol gravitas. in our minds. Yeah. Very important one. Well, I'm so glad you stayed with me a bit more today. I think that you're yeah. really seeing how all of this history is incredibly important for understanding what's going on in the modern day. Well, I mean, you could say that. You could also say we're getting to the good stuff. We you know, are. I think as we're seeing as we're seeing things congeal and come together, you know, we're entering maybe a second act where the inciting incident is done, the exposition is done, and there's starting to be a little more action and sort of stakes are raising a little bit. Yeah. And I think and I think that I think that that's exciting. That's an exciting place to be. And I hope that you'll be able to to join us soon. Yeah. Uh, and to pers to pursue this to pursue this. Uh, what I'm hoping I'm hoping maybe two three steps we can we can you know we can maybe even get to the 20th century. I think that we will be able to. Of course, we're right on the brink of the Protestant Reformation. And oh, yeah. we are going to, next time, get introduced to Charles V. So I don't think that we should move too fast over those subjects due to their incredible importance. But it, at the same it, time, yeah. I think we can make great progress through them and get to the present day um, very shortly. Just because the movie has come out, uh, everyone's talking about Dune a lot again, and I'm reminded 
of how the book slows down during this one dinner party scene near the beginning and how I, the first six times I tried to read the book, I couldn't get through this dinner party scene. They pour water on the floor and remember what happens. Uh, and uh, I feel like the Protestant Reformation may be the dinner party scene of the Habsburgs. We're going to have to get through that together. We will. Thanks so much, Thank and we'll talk so to you much. soon. Committee. Comitato. Committed. Committato. Carule. Committee. We're young. Way. Submitting. We're committing. And we're back. Welcome to the committee program. The finest cigarette you'll ever get, and one to enjoy with no regrets or self-criticism. That's Cadre Cigarettes, the national brand of Equatorial Fredonia. And now, once again, the committee orchestra led by Miles Panning, who are Josh Carruthers and Ray Loki. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Good. Yeah, um, it's been a while since you've played, eh? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since I well, played, for sure. I mean... Could you join a little bit? Join, you know, give us a little bit of a, a little After bit of something. Josh, you know, it's been a while. You know, I don't really have anything set up here that I could even oh, use. Oh come as an on! So I don't need. I don't know. I mean, I don't. I'd love to. Oh, you know what? Ooh, great, great. Maybe great. let's try. Come on, this Maybe will be let's great. Try. Let's just have fun. Let's just see what happens. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll let you kind of lead this one. Play in whatever key you wish, but don't use up all the notes. Oh, please. Let's do it and see if we can. Okay. No, I don't want to be a hero here. All right, click it off, my friend.
man. Oh, oh man. Well, I mean, you know, just a little that something was, for Epiphany Day. That I was think. nice. That was for the kids. It's like, I think it's nice to do something. Pro work for the kids. Yeah. For the kids, if you can. Yeah. We mild panning. Yeah, thank you so much Love to you both. Us. Yeah, keep keep it mild, keep around. It mild around. Che oltretano possa dirsi di noi, dir tutti noi, e così come auguro Tiny Tim, così, così come auguro Tiny Tim, il Signore ci benedicta tutti quanti. Ci benedica, ci benedica. Ci benedica, ci benedica tutti quanti. Okay, all together, all together, all together, tutti, okay, tutti. Tutti. Tutti, tutti. Che oltretano possa dirsi di noi, di tutti noi. I don't think... Così. What are you saying? What's that? First off, it's altrettanto. Ah, yeah, altrettanto. Altrettanto. Che altrettanto possa dirsi di noi, di tutti noi. Possa dirsi. Sì. Possa dirsi. Ah, Che oltretano possa dirsi di noi, di tutti noi, e così, come auguro Tiny Tim, il Signore ci benedica tutti quanti. Mm, no. Yeah, yeah, was relatively fine. Canto di Natale. Canto, canto di Natale. Yeah, canto di Natale was fine. I mean, All right. Right. I mean honestly, Christmas. I'm not even... I, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I'm not even sure why I'm practicing. It's not even Christmas anyway. You know, it's, uh, I think... I think I missed the chance to learn about that and that, you know, the language lessons, we need to keep them more more age-appropriate and more holiday-appropriate. So, I mean, look, why don't you... It is actually the day of the Epiphany today as we're recording. As you know, the show is recorded on different days and stitched together with seamless well, precision. It's, it, it's actually tomorrow, but it's fine. I mean, it's okay. Is that right? Okay, yeah. see, educate me. Tell, tell me and everyone what is what is the day of Epiphany Look, it's 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 really easy. So basically, you know, you know, like the three kings in Catholic legend, si. they bring gifts to the babies. Yeah. So apparently, in Italian culture, the the three kings didn't know where to go, and they just asked this old lady, and this old lady, which was called, which is called. The this Bersana. is very Jewish, by the way. Being sort of magical, but still not knowing where to go, is is a very <laughs> yeah, Old Testament. Good. That's a good thing good. we yeah, do. Well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, so, and so basically this old lady just gives them, shows them the way, and apparently as sort of a, this sort of Italian Central Italy tradition, she just goes, the 6th of January, she brings presents to all the kids who behave well. Yeah, or chuckle to the one that, that doesn't. If you did not yeah. behave well. Ah, the old lump of coal, which seems like an okay thing to get, honestly giving energy crises and crunches. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind right now. But, so, yeah. is that in lieu of Santa, or is that in addition to Santa? If I lived in Central Italy, should I expect as a child gifts on uh, Christmas Day as well as the day uh, of the Epiphany? Yeah, it's Christmas too. It's. I used to receive only candies, not presents, but. And now, tell me more about the Christmas witch, because this seems a bit exciting. Is she a good witch or a bad witch? Is she a young witch or an old witch? Well, she's kind of old. You you don't know her age, and she she's kind-hearted and she's kind of like a grandma, everyone's grandma. She's cool. 
Okay, well look, one of my favorite Christmas traditions as someone who doesn't really like Christmas is uh, when everyone throws all their Christmas stuff out. And so I didn't want to stop that now that I'm in Berlin. And so I have obviously gone through the trash. Okay. My neighbors. Now you tell me what we can use for a, an epiphany tree or something that we can do, you know, with the, you know, for the show next year. Uh, and I'll put it in storage along with the hat. And you tell me what we can't use. Okay. So here I have, white people are so weird and Christmas is so weird, sorry. Uh, here I have like dried citrus or something. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, uh, nah, nah, nah. One looks like a peach, no? No, no. Antlers, is that like a epiphanianic? Nah, not really. A decorative gourd? No, you can you can throw that away. I feel like it's the wrong color. This is all fall. It's like Christmas, but it's still sort of fall. Yeah, all right. Candles. Candles? On strange hooks. Good. Okay. Candles? See, see. You know, one thing I did hear about, one thing I did hear about that uh, about Italian Christmas that I thought was very cool and economically progressive, and so maybe that's something worth sharing with our audience, is that y'all watch Trading Places, the Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd vehicle, uh, on television traditionally as families on Christmas, which I and think is remarkable. And it has a great name. In Italy, it's called Una Poltrona per Due, which is an armchair for two. Oh, really? It's like the literal translation of the posters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, and it's aired Monta every night on the 24th on Christmas Eve. So you just watch it and then you... you and this is a new tradition, away. right? So <laughs> when did people start watching it, right? When the film <laughs> came out, which would have been in the mid-80s? It's, it started when rights of the film were relatively cheap and Berlusconi from Mediaset Ah, started. of course, certo, and Silvio. So it's like, it's on Mediaset, it's on Berlusconi's television every single What's year Silvio? on the 24th. Oh my God, he has remade Italy in so many different ways. And he, now that I know that, I want to increase my bet uh, with anyone in our viewership or otherwise who knows me who I've bet you that Berlusconi could become president of the Republic, this proves it. He has the kind of long vision. Man, he may be a monster, <laughs> but he knows television. Sounds like someone we else we all know. All right, you all, but thank you very much for really getting down to the bottom of the epiphany with us. I feel like it's our own mini epiphany. And I'm gonna stop saying that word. We probably won't have to until next year. Mm. Good night. La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida.